2: Pee-wee Gaskins had a reputation as a liar, a manipulator, and a killer. He dominated and controlled everyone around him. But surprisingly, he was also known for his kindness. He enjoyed hosting cookouts on weekends for his family and friends, with children playing all around them. He extended his generosity to the elderly on several occasions. Pee-wee could make you believe he was a really nice guy and your friend, but beneath that charming exterior, a killer lurked, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the man who would fix a senior citizen's car for free, and the monster who would stab you with a Campbell Soup Knife.
3: He attacked two of the different guards, put them both in the hospital.
0: Was he really crazy or just somebody wanted to kill somebody?
4: It was the scariest, most frightening thing I've seen.
3: And I realized that I had violated the code.
2: From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. I'm Jeff Keating. The relationship between Jim and Pee Wee grew over time and extended to Jim's wife and kids. The tales from his prison interviews were a source of entertainment for the whole family.
4: He would come back from a visit to Pee Wee and we would gather together and hear the stories. Scary stories for the children and the little ones. My concerns grew and the children got more fascinated with the gory details.
2: But there were funny and endearing stories about Pee Wee that Jim shared with his family as well. It was that man, good guy Gaskins that Jim and the Beatty family built a rapport with. On their weekly Sunday morning phone calls, Pee-wee made to their house from prison.
3: I called it research. I was researching this mass murder and anything that I could learn, I wanted to learn. So I thought that was one more way of being able to do this. The phone calls were answered usually by two of the younger children. And they would call me to the phone after some brief conversation. He called dozens of times to our house on Sunday morning, collect.
2: Jim drove two hours each way to visit Pee Wee every week, listening to Merle Haggard and Frank Sinatra on cassette tapes, thinking about the book and the stories he was going to put in it. He never knew how long the interviews would continue or if the prison would stop them for some reason. The phone calls were follow-up. Research, Jim called it and the Sunday morning calls also created a new family dynamic.
4: And I wasn't afraid for him. I don't know why I wasn't, but I wasn't. He was in big prison. Pee-wee would call for Jim, but on the way to getting Jim on the phone, the kids would be asked by him, are you going to Sunday school, are you being good? And Christian was fascinated with that.
2: It was one of those calls with Christian that ended with a surprise invitation.
3: Christian, I think was eight years old and he was answering the phone regularly and Pee Wee called one Sunday and Christian took the call and the entire conversation was between Christian and Pee Wee. I was not called to the phone. Christian hung up and came to my office he said, Dad, did you know Pee-wee's suing the state of South Carolina? I said, no, Christian, do you know I'm Mother Goose? He said, Dad, I'm serious. He said, they've mistreated him. I said, what do you mean, Christian? He said, they have neglected his hemorrhoids. And we both laughed a bit. He said, and there's a hearing at the end of next week, and we are all invited. I said... Christian, have you taken leave of your senses? What's wrong with you, boy? He said, Dad, I'm telling the truth. So I called my attorney and asked him, Could it possibly be true that Pee Wee is suing the state of South Carolina for cruel and unusual punishment? He said, Indeed, he is. And I hope you all can attend the hearing because I can't be there. That week, we go to Columbia, two of our younger children and Anita go to the hearing. There's no one in the room except a judge and two state attorneys and Peewee with the guards who have him handcuffed. And Peewee presents his case and is suing the state of South Carolina for $1 million for neglecting his
2: hemorrhoids. Peewee was worried and in pain and he was seeking relief.
4: We were there in the courtroom. I expected five feet two, one inch tall, really pale skin, really black hair. He walked in. His arms were chained to his waist. He had on ankle chains. It sounded like that scene from the Ebenezer Scrooge story. The ghost of Christmas past, rattling his change, coming in the courtroom. And there were two marshals, one on either side of him. And they looked big and burly, and he didn't even come up to their shoulders. But they were so nervous with him, and he was smiling. I know I'm the man, and you don't know what I'm going to do next, kind of thing. It was just really fascinating, and I was shocked at how small he was and frail looking, and they were so obviously nervous.
2: The hearing only lasted a few minutes. Pee Wee complained that the prison officials had failed to address his repeated complaints about hemorrhoids, and their inattention to his medical condition amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. He requested the judge rule in his favor and award him $1 million as compensation for his pain and suffering.
3: The state attorneys did not respond. The hearing closed and as the guards stood, when Pee Wee stood, our son Christian went immediately to him and put out his hand. And Pee Wee with his handcuffs put out his right hand and he and Christian shook hands right there at the hemorrhoids hearing. I was not concerned for the safety of our son because he was handcuffed and those men were standing right there with him. And Peewee was my acquaintance. I had his trust. I trusted him, he trusted me. We did things for each other.
2: Little did I know, of course. Two weeks after the court appearance, Jim visited Peewee in prison. He was ready to write down new stories Peewee would share that day.
3: And without the usual, good morning, Mr. Jim, how are you doing, how was the drive? He said, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? And I said, what news, Peewee? He said, we won. We won. I said, what did we win? He said, we beat him on the hemorrhoids trial. I said, we did? I said, what did we get? He said, we got $1 and a large tube of preparation age.
2: Two men, a literary professor and a mass murderer, had established a comfortable relationship and the bond extended to their families. Young Christian would exchange letters with Pee Wee. It was a terrific story to share with his classmates. How many of them personally knew a murderer? Never mind the most famous mass murderer in state history.
4: He just loved the fact that he could write a letter to a friend in that prison. So after the hemorrhoid hearing, a package arrives, and it's for Christian Beatty. And you can tell it's hand-wrapped, it's hand-marked. It's very elaborately and carefully done. And Christian opened it, and it was a hat. It was the scariest, strangest, weirdest, most frightening thing I've seen. It had a floppy denim brim that he clearly had cut out of some blue jeans in prison. It had horns, stuffed horns like devil horns, on top. But the tips were painted red like blood on the tips. And it was probably red fingernail polish because it was paint. And it had a crown that had been hand-stitched, and you could see the hand-stitching because it wasn't the same color as the fabric anywhere, but it was done carefully and intentionally and graphically to portray this image. This was made by Pee Wee by hand in prison, and Christian thought it was the best thing he had ever seen.
2: Red-tipped bullhorns atop a crown denim floppy hat sewn with prison thread and a needle. It's a macabre image with a dark humor to it. A sort of, thanks for your support, gift from a mass murderer. Here's his brother Mark talking about the new cap.
3: I'll never forget him showing it to me proudly, Christian that is. And I wanted to uh, share in his enthusiasm, but <laughs> I was not enthused. I thought it was a bad idea.
4: We were fascinated, too, but we were horrified, too, because you have to see it to understand the mix of emotions. It was stunning. We still have it. It's just an important symbol of this man, the conflated, contrasting images and behavior and emotions and mix of this man. And I think Jim's position on he should have been studied is exactly right.
2: The Beatty family went to Pee Wee's trial out of curiosity and to offer support. They did favors for him as well.
4: Jim and I picked up his mother and his sister Carol and Donnie, his son, and took them for a day trip to Myrtle Beach. I'm not sure his mother had ever been to the beach. So we sat out on the sand and had a little picnic.
2: Jim showed other kind gestures towards Pee-wee's family, like meeting Pee-wee's sister for lunch or taking his mom to prison for a visit. These folks had done no wrong, and Jim treated them respectfully. But sooner or later, you are bound to encounter the face of Pee-wee's Mr. Hyde. Jim came across this dark side of Pee-wee when he delayed a simple request.
3: He asked me would I deliver a radio to his son Donnie through his mother who knew I was bringing it and Donnie didn't because it was a surprise. And I said, of course and Pee Wee showed it to me, and he said, this is a gift for my son Donnie, and if you'll take it to him, I'll be very grateful. When I left Columbia to drive back to Myrtle Beach, Prospect is just a little off the beaten bath, and as I approached Prospect, I realized I was running late. I had a speaking engagement that night about the book, and I didn't want to be late. So I decided, oh, I'll take it back when, whenever I can. That next Sunday morning, Christian answers the phone, and he talks briefly, not long. I didn't hear it. Christian comes to me and said, Dad, it's Pee-wee, but he really sounds weird. So I go to the phone, and I say, Hello, Pee-wee, in this very high voice says, this Mr. Jim Beatty? And that was the only time that he ever called me Mr. Jim Beatty. It was always Mr. Jim. Never Mr. Beatty, never anything else. He said, this Mr. Jim Beatty? I said, of course, Pee-wee. Hello, it's Jim. How are you? He said, did I have occasion to give you a radio last Wednesday to take to my Son, by way of my mother's house in Prospect. I said, you certainly did, Pee-wee. Please let me apologize. I said, I am so sorry that I didn't do that. He said, when do you think you might be able to deliver that? I said, as I turn a whiter shade of pale, (laughs) I said, this afternoon, Pee-wee. He said, can I tell my mother that it'll be there today? I said, you certainly may. He said, thank you. Click.
5: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
2: That ominous phone call from Pee-wee sent chills down Jim Beatty's spine. Pictures of grisly autopsy photos flashed through his mind. The tone of Pee-wee's voice was most alarming. That same voice was the voice I
3: heard when he talked about Dennis Bellamy. The same voice that I heard later on when he talked about Tyner the same voice that he talked about, Avery Howard. And I realized that I had violated the code. And that was serious, serious business.
2: Jim and Anita Beatty had plenty of reasons to be concerned after the radio incident. Pee Wee had always been transparent during his interviews about how he viewed betrayal. He did say, my mother
3: will be expecting the radio. And I knew that I did not want to be in that category of people that didn't follow up on what Pee Wee required and asked them to
2: do. Do not fail Pee Wee Gaskins. Several people in this story lost their lives after they betrayed him. They were shot, stabbed, strangled, or drowned. Jim references a code that Pee Wee followed. Expectations for people around him. Expectations that others should live by and that he would kill by. Not formal, not sensible. Newspapers all over the Southeast printed stories about the killer's code as a way to understand a man who murdered so many. These mass murderers are easier to comprehend To categorize, to contain, if we're able to put labels on their behaviors. But with Gaskins, there was no firm sense of why, no easy justification or psychologizing, no clear modus operandi. He didn't kill couples parked in cars at night, or bury his victims under his house. He didn't present a sexual fetish, or chop people up and put their body parts in his freezer. There is evidence, though, that Gaskins had his own strictly enforced, twisted sense of morals. The penalty for violating his morality could be death. Holly Gatling, Margaret O'Shea, and Cecil Chandler all spent significant time with Pee-wee's story and helped shed light on him as a killer.
4: I'll tell you what he told me one time. You know, some of his phrases stick in my mind. He said, I ain't never killed nobody that didn't need killing. Not a lot surprises me about what people are capable of doing. At that point in my life, I had written about many, many others who had done grisly things. People called him a serial killer, but unlike most, he didn't have an M.O. He he didn't have a trigger or uh, desire to be met that figured into all of his killings.
0: This is a kind of person. You wonder what's going through his mind. Was he really crazy, or just somebody wanted to kill somebody?
2: Of the eleven people killed so far in our story, seven were by hand, drowned, beaten, or stabbed with the Campbell soup knife. Physical violence from a man who was just over 5 feet tall and weighed 130 pounds. Here's Jim. He, he was
3: 13 years of age. He established himself early in the industrial school there in Florence. He was the smallest in the group, but he was the quickest, he was the fastest. He attacked two of the different guards, put them both in the hospital. So he became the big man early, even at the reform school. And this was a pattern for Pee Wee. This is an M.O., establish who's in charge.
2: The potential for violence goes a long way in crowd control. And Pee Wee used it over those people around him. It held them in check, got them to meet his expectations. One of the violations to Pee-wee's twisted ethics was whites should not mix with blacks, especially when it came to sex. Gaskins thought people had their place and that whites and blacks had no place together. And he was willing to go as far as murder to enforce his expectations. And Pee-wee felt no guilt when discussing his murders. The only time that Gaskins came close to remorse... Was when he talked to Jim Beatty about Johnny Knight.
3: Pee Wee talked to me about what a shame it was that John Henry Knight had to die. He didn't say, I killed him and I'm sorry. He simply said, It was a shame that John
2: Henry Knight had to die. It's a shame Johnny Knight had to die. There's a detached passive voice in that sentence. That hides the action of the murder, as if Johnny just died on his own. It's a shame Johnny Knight had to die. This way of speaking, in the passive voice, removes the horror that actually took place. We know that Gaskins was a brutal killer, and in his view, none deserved his wrath more than those white folks who mixed with black folks, or black folks who destroyed the lives of decent white folks.
3: Pee Wee had a bitter hatred for all black people. Felt their inferiority, did not trust them, did not want them around him, did not want them to exist. He was that severe in his racism. So when Doreen Dempsey had a child, Michelle Robin Dempsey was born, when he sees this baby and can tell, obviously, this is a black baby, he was utterly infuriated. He felt betrayed. He felt that the person he had taken in and helped so many years ago and so thoroughly, he hated this. And that was the fruition of the manifestation of his harsh racism.
2: Pee Wee drowned Doreen Dempsey because she got pregnant by a black man. He then drowned her two year old baby for being of mixed race to save her from what he saw as a certain life of misery precisely because she was biracial. To satisfy his sense of ethics, Gaskins also poisoned Clyde Dix and dumped her body unceremoniously on the side of the road for apparently selling drugs to his niece, Patricia and her friend, Janice Allsbrook. And of course, we can't forget that... Rudolph
3: Tyner was a black man who violated the worst of the code by killing a white man, Bill Moon and Mrs. Moon. Pee-wee told me as Rudolph Tyner walked in the walkway one story above us, he said, there he is. He said, I could kill him right now if I had my 30-30. And as Pee-wee told me several times, lots of people don't deserve to live. And Rudolph Tyner was one of those.
2: Pee-wee's sense of ethics also penalized those who acted poorly in front of children.
3: One of the main items in Pee-wee's code was that he did not allow anyone to curse or drink or misbehave in any way around the children, especially the children that he had in his
2: house. The man who strangled his niece, drowned a baby, and raped teenage girls was also their fearsome protector. Jim and Anita saw this paradox and contradiction in Pee Wee. He never cursed. No explicit language allowed. Yes, he pistol whipped a man within an inch of his life but he never used profanity while doing so. But one of his enemies violated this code. His
3: hatred for Dennis Bellamy began with Bellamy's behavior in front of the children that were in his house. He deeply resented this. Tom Henderson loved to ask Pee Wee, you didn't let them drink or cuss in front of the children? And Pee Wee said, absolutely not. He said they weren't going to cuss and drink around my kids. So he had this code that he demanded to be followed. And he himself, in my presence, he never once used any profanity.
2: Through all of those parties at his trailer, rock and roll blaring on the radio, beers and barbecue for everyone, people were still expected to abide by his rules. And one of Pee Wee's golden rules was no jawing. No talking about his crimes. Some of those in Pee-wee's circle were complicit in his various crimes. If they threatened to talk about any of Gaskin's suspected murders or steal and dealings, the penalty was death. Disloyalty was unacceptable. Diane Bellamy was killed after she threatened to tell police about an underage girl having sex at Pee-wee's home. Avery Howard was taken out when he suggested Diane knew about one of his murders. Johnny Sellers was murdered after he threatened Belton Eadie, saying he was going to rat him and Pee-wee out unless he was paid. And Jesse Judy was killed as a witness to her boyfriend's murder, not to mention she had left Pee-wee for another man. The
3: question of loyalty
2: entered in the relationship that Pee-wee had
3: with Jesse, Judy. And although he allowed Johnny and Jesse to set up housekeeping, he deeply resented it. So I do think that that entered into his mind when he killed Jesse, Judy.
2: Jim Beatty was well aware of Pee-wee's codes. And when Pee-wee asked you to do something, you did it. So after Jim delayed delivering a radio to Pee-wee's son, the civility that Pee-wee had once extended to Jim was noticeably strained. Jim was nervous. But Jim wasn't like the others. He wasn't in Pee-wee's crew. He wasn't threatening to turn state's evidence. He was just a man who forgot to deliver a surprise gift to Pee-wee's only son. Could he too go from friend to foe so quickly? He
4: said, I ain't never killed nobody that didn't need killing.
0: You know, he just chilled whatever he wanted to when he wanted to.
5: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With our flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
2: He just killed whoever he wanted to, when he wanted to. Cecil Chandler's quote speaks to the brutal reality of living in Wee Gaskin circle. During all of his killings, there were two separate trials in which Wee was convicted of murder for hire. Silas Barnwell Yates was the first. He was a 44-year-old local farmer who did very well growing and selling tobacco, on his farm near Sumter, South Carolina. His farm and his house were large by any standard, but he was recently separated from his wife and his accommodations had changed.
3: Barnwell Yates was living in a trailer because they'd separated. He certainly could have afforded a house or another place to live, but he was in his own trailer on his property.
2: Barnwell started a relationship with Suzanne Kippers who was 15 years younger than he was. He lavished her with gifts and attention.
3: All of the courting and taking her out to eat and all of that business, he bought her a Dotson Z, a beautiful horse saddles, all of this stuff. I think he had all the money that he could spend with his money clip with hundreds of dollars in it all the time. I called him a gentleman farmer, but he got mixed up with the wrong bunch.
2: By 1974, though, Suzanne was apparently done with her gentleman farmer. She left him and began a lengthy battle over those gifts. Just divorced, and perhaps still sore from the breakup, Barnwell found himself estranged from another woman. She took her gifts, and he wanted them back. The issues of ownership over the car, the horse, and jewelry went into a lengthy court battle. And those issues were never resolved. While she was fighting Barnwell, Suzanne began a relationship with John Owens. She was 29, he was 22. She was a svelte young woman, and he was from a well-to-do family. But John Owens was naive compared to the sexy and sexually experienced Suzanne. And since she could not let go of her anger towards Barnwell Yates, Suzanne asked her new beau, to do something about her troubles. He hired attorneys, tried to put legal pressure on him, all for naught. The horse and the Dotson Z were still in Barnwell's name, so he was able to properly claim those in repossession. She was infuriated and suggested John Owens get a guy to scare Barnwell Yates into giving up the fight for the stolen presents. She was going to get back the horse and car any way she could. Suzanne Kipper knew a man named John Powell, known as Tedlam, who she thought would be able to help. Tedlam was an associate of Peewee Gaskins and must have known that he was just the kind of guy to hire in this type of situation. So he introduced Suzanne and John to Peewee. The four concocted a plan to scare Barnwell Yates, but that plan somehow turned into murder. On February 12, 1975, Peewee drove with Tedlam, Suzanne, and John Owens to Barnwell's trailer. Peewee
3: said that someone went to Barnwell Yates's trailer and knocked on the door and asked Barnwell Yates to come out and, for some reason, to speak with whoever was supposed to be outside. And he said, "I don't have time to be bothered with you. Leave me alone."
2: At that, Peewee and Tedlam got out of Peewee's car and took matters into their own hands.
3: And it was then they went in and forced him out and put him in the trunk of the car
2: and took him away. Court testimony reveals that Wee handcuffed Barnwell and put him in the trunk of the car. Apparently, Suzanne started begging them not to kill her former lover, who was in the trunk praying and begging for his life. There's no turning back now, Pee Wee told them. Barnwell had seen him and could turn him in, and Pee Wee was not interested in going back to jail. Killing him was the logical end to the plan. Plus, he was hired to do a job. They drove to Pee Wee's field near Prospect. Pee Wee and Tedlam took Barnwell from the trunk and led him into the dark field. Suzanne and John Owens were told to remain in the car. They waited for a gunshot. None came. They were startled a while later when Pee-wee suddenly opened the car door, insisting they follow him to see the body. They didn't need to see him, they insisted, but Pee-wee demanded that they look at the dead body. When they got to Barnwell Yates, they saw his throat was covered in blood. Pee-wee and Tedlam dragged the body into a shallow grave and covered it with some dirt and underbrush. Suzanne and John Owens were driven back to their own car and told never to mention the murder to anyone or they too would be killed. Pee-wee also reminded them that they were now accessories to murder. He told them, we're all in this together now.
3: Pee-wee mentioned this killing to me because he wanted to show me the toughness of his karate chop hand and he said, I used this hand to break his windpipe. He said, that's how Barnwell Yates died. I killed him. And then when solicitors and other people later on tried to say he was killed another way, he was shot, he said, that may have happened after I was there, but I killed Barnwell Yates with my karate chop. He said, I hit the iron bar on the side of my bed a hundred times as hard as I can, every night so that my hand will be tough enough for the karate chop and he would always put it out and say here feel that and sometimes i did and it was like a rock
2: it was the same hand that young christian Beatty reached out to shake at the hemorrhoid trial the same hand that later made the blood tipped bullhorn denim hat the same one that held Doreen dempsey and her toddler underwater Jim and Pee-wee rarely talked about his murders directly. Jim says he wasn't overly interested in the vivid descriptions, styled like In Cold Blood, a book he taught numerous times in his classes at Coastal Carolina University. They talked about Barnwell Yates only as a means for talking about Pee-wee's hardened fist and karate chop. The result of that blow to his throat led to asphyxiation for poor Barnwell. When police discovered the body, it was so badly decomposed that the coroner could not tell if his throat had been cut or not. And exactly how authorities got to that body is itself its own incredible tale. One year after his arrest for the eight bodies in his burial field, after his conviction for murdering Dennis Bellamy, Pee Wee Gaskins was ready to make a deal to give up another body. He hadn't yet made his plea deal, and the death penalty was currently illegal, so he knew the most he'd get for this new body was another life sentence, if they could prove he was the murderer. This is when Pee-wee told authorities to look for Patricia Allsbrook under a cement slab. Police ended up finding her in a septic tank. Now, police thought he could be trusted for even more information. Pee-wee pledged to give up Barnwell Yates. Up to this point, police had only Suzanne and John Owens as suspects. She had been in a relationship with him and was in court battles with him when he disappeared. Police tried to question the newly married couple about Barnwell's disappearance. They were uncooperative and without a body or evidence of any kind, they could not bring any charges. So in shackles and cuffs, Pee-wee was taken out of prison and led investigators to Barnwell Yates' body. Here's Florence County Sheriff Billy Barnes on a television news report the evening they found the body.
3: And over in the field on this side of the road is where Barnwell Yates' body was found. Barnwell was lured out of his trailer, picked up by Pee-wee and a couple other people, put in the trunk of a car, brought out to this field where he was killed and buried. They found the body early afternoon and they identified the body. And that night was when they actually arrested John Owens and Suzanne Owens. Well, it worked. He cooperated. He said to me several times, I just got to keep up my end of the bargain, which I find so ironic. But that's exactly what he said and what he felt. And he wanted it done. He's like my carrying the radio back to his son. I told him I was going to do it. He wants it done.
2: Police quickly arrested Tedlam Powell and charged all of them for Barnwell Yates' murder. In exchange for this revelation, Peewee was given a conjugal visit with his wife, Donna Carullo. Peewee's attorney later wrote that all parties involved agreed that if Donna was a willing participant and was lawfully his wife, that they were doing nothing immoral or illegal. But there were stipulations. If there is any indication that she is being threatened or forced in any way, it's over. If you have thoughts about escaping, I will shoot you, and I've told my men to shoot you in that event. If you refuse to let her leave or hold her hostage we will consider that she is a part of the conspiracy and we will not be responsible for what happens to her in doing what we need to do to capture or kill you. Do you understand? End quote. Pee-wee must have understood because he got a two-hour visit with Donna. They were given a cot near a small desk and a lamp in the corner of a room at the prison behind a painter's drop cloth.
3: I think that that kind of bargaining probably went on all the time. She willingly went there and stayed with him for the two hours, and the police officers were at the far end of the room, and they were in an enclosed area in one corner. I didn't get the feeling at all that Donna was at least a bit hesitant. In fact, I think that she was glad to go and see him and be with him for two hours. That was my impression. I said to Pee-wee, Pee-wee, were you pleased with the visit? And he said, let me put it to you this way. For two hours, I put it to her by God. I have to laugh out loud every time I think of Pee-wee and his conjugal visit.
2: So Pee-wee was in prison on a life sentence for killing Dennis Bellamy. He was awaiting all sorts of rulings and hearings about the death penalty and he gave up Barnwell Yates for a two-hour conjugal visit with his wife Donna. He was near agreeing to the plea deal for eight murders as a means of avoiding the electric chair. He held some sort of hope that he'd be eligible for parole at some point. In giving up Barnwell Yates, though, Pee Wee joined three other defendants in a murder trial. The trial drew the whole state's attention. Pee-wee was a household name all over South Carolina in 1977, and he was on trial with Suzanne Owens, John Owens, and Tedlam Powell. We're all in this together, Pee-wee had told them, the night he killed Barnwell Yates. John Owens was called to testify as the state's first witness. He had turned state's evidence. No more than 30 minutes into his testimony... The defense asked for a recess during which they agreed to plea deals for John, Suzanne, and Tedlam. It was all Pee Wee, John Owens declared on the stand. Prosecution said Pee Wee was paid around $2,000 for the murder. When Pee Wee was called to the stand, he was red hot from the lack of loyalty shown by the co defendants. The courtroom was silent. Pee Wee had everyone's attention. And he let loose. Determined to get back at John Owens, he tried to establish his trust with the jury by blurting out several other murders he committed and where they could find the bodies. So deep was his disrespect that he was willing to risk potential further trials and sentencing to defend his honor. They killed Barnwell. I had nothing to do with it, he told the jury. He told them where he had seen Clyde Dick's dead body. This is also the moment when he claimed he killed Peg Cutno. Pee Wee claimed several other high profile unresolved murders in South Carolina, but no connection was ever made that he actually killed them. On Wednesday, April 27, 1977, It took a jury 58 minutes to convict him of murdering Silas Barnwell Yates. John Owens pled guilty to accessory after the fact of murder and received a maximum 10-year sentence. Suzanne Kipper Owens pled guilty to accessory before the fact on condition the state would not oppose her parole hearing in 10 years and that she be given some type of secretarial work while in prison. John Tedlam Powell, pled guilty to murder on condition the state would not oppose his parole hearing in 10 years. At Pee Wee's sentencing, Circuit Court Judge Dan Laney gave him another life sentence and said, I just don't understand how a human being can take as many lives as you have. Don't you feel anything? You must not believe in God. This trial would never have happened had it not been for the conjugal visit with his wife, Donna Carullo. And as the result of another conjugal visit, Pee-wee took investigators to find the missing girl, Kim Gelkins.
1: Pee-wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keening. Executive producers are Courtney DeFries and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFries, and Terry James. Edit, mix, and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Beatty. Additional thanks to the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections and the University of South Carolina.
5: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey?